Hi, this is Gilbert O'Sullivan, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Bob Gruen, a very famous rock and roll photographer. He's known for his photographs of John Lennon, Tina Turner, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Elton John, and Kiss. And he also has done a whole bunch of kind of New York, new wave punk rock bands like the New York Dolls, The Clash, Sex Pistols, Ramones, and Blondie. This guy's the real deal. And you know that I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end of every episode. And I always try to make the song relevant somehow. And in this instance, I've chosen my song, New York City Groove from the Made in New York album by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose it? Well, I chose this because in his great photographs, Bob captured that New York City groove that I wrote about. So I thought it fit. So Bob Gruen, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. All right, well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You bet. All right, I saw something in your bio that just jumped out at me that I wanted to start with, and that is you kind of got your start at the World's Fair back in like 64 or 65 in New York. So let's talk about that. Tell me about your experience at the World's Fair. Well, I don't know if I really got my start there. It was one of my first jobs, though, um, that I was very excited. I I dropped out of college in the spring of 1964. I wasn't really paying much attention to school. And I came back to New York uh, to live with some friends of mine, moved into Greenwich Village, but I needed a job to pay for it. And I just went to the World's Fair and walked around from one booth to another until I got hired. Uh, the first year, actually, I was baking Belgian waffles for some guys who actually were from Kansas, not Belgium. And our booth was in the Bourbon Street, New Orleans, uh, Louisiana exhibit. So, uh, But I learned how to bake waffles pretty well. <laughs> uh, Gene Krupa was in an exhibit right across the, the boardwalk there, uh, the gangway, whatever they call it, uh, the Midway. And so it was a fun time. There was every country in the world, people from all over the world. The second year, I actually worked for a photo company uh, where they had a booth that sold film and flashbulbs. And uh, so I was selling film and flashbulbs. And uh, and each year, uh, in the middle of the summer, I had to take off to go to the Newport Folk Festival. And I was extremely lucky the way it worked out because the first year, um, I, we didn't really have money for tickets. I didn't even have money for gas, but I just knew I had to go somehow to the festival. And I was going to quit my job and go to Newport the next day. And just somehow, I didn't know where I was going to borrow the money or what. Uh, and I was, I waited till after work, like at three in the morning when we were cleaning up and, and the fair was closing. And I turned to the boss at the end and I was opening my mouth to say I quit when he said, we have something to tell you. And I'm really sorry to let you know, but the business isn't what we expected. We're going to have to let you go and give you two weeks severance pay. <laughs> so I actually got the money to go to Newport by a hair. I was about to quit and get nothing. 
And instead, he cut me off and fired me and gave me money. <laughs> gave me two weeks. See how lucky you are. You know, for anybody that didn't go to the New York World's Fair or doesn't know about it, it was a very, very cool fair. Okay, it was in Queens. It was in, in the space where the tennis center is now located. And I remember going there also in the early stages. It was probably only there for a couple of years, like you said. But it was it was almost like Disney World. It was there two years, 64 to 65. Countries from all over the world built buildings for exhibitions. And uh, it was just a, a really amazing. A lot of states in America. I remember Minnesota had a trout pond where you could actually go fishing. Uh, New Orleans, of course, had a lot of entertainment. There was... Um, what was it? The Garden of Meditation, like the Christian Science Monitors had a big park that I liked it because it was just a place in the in the fair where you could go and uh, it was like a little meditative garden with some park, park benches and a little pond and stuff. Um, AT&T, the phone company, had a big exhibit. It was the first time I ever saw a push-button phone. That was a new invention back then. They didn't even thought about cell phones, but the push-button phone was a big thing. Did you go to the car exhibits? Because I remember Ford and General Motors both had exhibits, and you would you would ride through the exhibits in their cars. In their new car, yeah. Exactly. That was very cool. Italy sent the Piata, which is a super famous sculpture. And they had a little, like, a movie sidewalk because you couldn't hang around and spend a lot of time because so many people wanted to see it. You'd get it online, then you'd go in and kind of, slide past the Pieta for like 20 seconds or something. Uh, but I do remember that, this original Michelangelo marble sculpture there. It had everything. It was just, it was a huge park. And um, anyway, the second year I worked for the film and flashbulbs company. And again, in the middle of the summer, I just had a feeling I had to go to the Newport Festival. And that year on my way out, I did quit, but I stole 20 rolls of color film from the back room because I had no money for film or anything like that. And that was the film I took to Newport. I took some pictures, and that was the year that Bob Dylan played for the first time with an electric band. And it was quite a controversy that the folk singer of America was playing with electric rock and roll music. Were you hired to be the photographer, or did you just kind of do it on your own? I wasn't hired by anybody. I didn't know a single soul. After I took the pictures, I didn't even know the people in the magazines to send it to. Uh, I took two copies of a picture of Bob Dylan's office to his manager, to Albert Grossman, and they said they would, you know, see if they could use him or whatever. And I came back a week later and they said that Bob had taken him home. And apparently he liked him. Uh, they weren't hiring me or anything, but they gave me one ticket, not two. I couldn't even bring a girlfriend. They gave me one ticket to the next show that was out on Long Island. I had to take a train out to Roslyn or someplace. <laughs> um, and that was my first, uh, I didn't have an assignment or anything. In fact, my mom's friend, a friend of my mom's had a public relations company and he wrote a phony letter saying I was, I was representing the public relations company and that I should get a photo pass. And, uh, and I took that to the box office and they told me to get lost. And I said, no, no, I have to bring back pictures. And they said, get lost. And I said, I wouldn't leave. And they finally gave me a photo pass, but I had nobody to, I mean, the public relations agency didn't need my pictures and, and I didn't know anybody else to send them to. It was about four or five years before I, uh, it was after 1970, before I met anybody to publish them. Because in 1970, you see, that was really my big break, not the World's Fair. Uh, the World's Fair was just a, a kid job that, you know, to get from a couple of months to the next couple of months. But when I, uh, in 1970, a friend said we should go see Ike and Tina Turner. 
And I went and she was absolutely amazing. And we were playing several shows around New York that week. So we went a couple of days later uh, to the, a place called the Honkamonka Room on Queens Boulevard. It's not there anymore, but you can't make up a name like that. You can't go to the Honkamonka Room, huh? <laughs> they can't go back, no. Uh, but I can see the play. There was a basement. There was a linoleum floor. I remember the stage was about a foot high. It was very funky. But I brought my camera. And at the end of the show, Tina Turner dances off stage with a strobe light flashing. And I opened the camera to one second to see if I could capture a couple of the flashes. I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know where she was. I didn't know how to focus or what moment to take it. I took about four or five frames. Four of them are useless. And one of them is one of the best pictures I ever took. It captures five images of Tina jumping and, and throwing her arm up, up in the air. And it just captures all the excitement and energy that is Tina Turner. And, uh, and then the lucky break was that we went to see another show a couple of days later and I brought the pictures to show my friends. But as we were walking out, one of my friends saw Ike Turner going from one dressing room to another and literally pushed me in front of Ike and said, show Ike the pictures. And he looked at me and said, yeah, these are great pictures. And he said, I gotta show these to Tina. And he took me in the dressing room and all of a sudden Tina Turner was looking at my pictures and seemed liking them a lot. And then Ike, uh, he said, meet me in New York. And he introduced me to the first publicist I ever knew. And that guy introduced me to two other publicists within a week or so. He took me to a party. And before I knew it, one of those guys hired me to take pictures of a new uh, piano player that was just playing his first show in New York, a guy named Elton John. Now, I want to ask you a question, because I remember that first time that Elton John played in, in New York. I think it was on WNEW. He did a live album on WNEW after he had been on the West Coast. Is that what we're talking about? Or then he played the Fillmore. Where did you take him? He played at the Fillmore opening for Leon Russell. Right. He was opening for Leon Russell at the Fillmore, and that was the first time I saw him. First, first show he played in New York. And he liked me and my pictures, and he, he came back in the spring, and he was the headliner, and he hired me again. And then I think in the, just a couple months later, he played Carnegie Hall, and then I think by the fall, he was at Madison Square Garden. All right, now see if you have the same, see if you have the same memory as me, because I was at that show where he opened for Leon Russell. Uh -huh. And he was amazing. The band was amazing. Nobody knew who they were, but they had just played on WNEW FM, that live album, a day or so before. And that's why I went to see him. And he was so good that I think that Leon Russell would not even take the stage. He blew the place away. Do you remember that? Yeah. Oh, I remember that because I remember going to the show. It was like a... a, a... You know, I had just met this publicist and record company. It was like a very early job for me. And, I, and I'm like, I got to get good pictures. And I'm like, how do you get pictures of a piano player? There's this gigantic instrument in front of them. And they, they're just like this little head in the back. But Elton John actually had the piano sideways. He faced the audience for almost all this show. Then he started jumping around. At one point, he's like horizontal to the piano. And I got a great picture of that. They still keep publishing that picture. He was the most exciting piano player I've ever seen uh, before or since, he's just amazing. And his songs are great, and the audience loves it, and they sing, you know, within a, a few minutes, they're singing along. He was fantastic. We really got along great. I still see him nowadays. He's got a charity, and he has a big dinner every year for the AIDS research. And now he asks me to uh, make up copies of my prints, and I sign them, and he signs them, and they sell them for a lot of money at the charity. Oh, that's fantastic. We've actually raised a couple hundred thousand dollars. Good for you. All right, so tell me, how did you get to... John Lennon. That's the that's the big one I want to hear about. Well, that was another just, you know, things happen. You know, the name of my book is Right Place, Right Time. 
because uh, you have to be in the right place at the right time and then do the right thing. There you go. That's the key to the whole thing. Being in the right place at the right time helps a lot, but you got to do the right thing. And uh, by 1972, I had taken pictures of Argentina and Elton and uh, Alice Cooper and a bunch of other people. And I got included in the very first book collection of rock and roll photos called The Photography of Rock. Up on my shelf here, um, and um, and then from the guy who was doing the interviews of the photographers, he liked me and he liked my pictures. And at the end of the interview, he said, "I'm doing an interview with John and Yoko next week. Would you like to come and take the pictures?" Now, everybody knew that John and Yoko had come to New York. It was all over the newspapers. They were riding bicycles in Greenwich Village. They literally lived a half a block away from me here in Greenwich Village. But I had not seen them on the street like many other people. And, you know, I was dying to meet them like they were. He was not only a Beatle, he was John and Yoko. It was, uh, John often said John and Yoko is one word. That as a couple, they did so much more. You know, they were politically motivated. They were, it's more than politics even. Yoko was always involved in communication, in the art of communication. And in people getting along together and communicating. And she inspired John to... Uh, do all kinds of um, things like that. First of all, she inspired him to write Imagine, which is a big deal. And she finally got credit for that a couple of years ago. But anyway, so I was super excited. He was actually writing a story about the Elephant's Memory Band. That was a local New York band, very politically minded. Uh, and John and Yoko liked that band. And they were using that band as the backup musicians for an album they were recording, the Sometime in New York album. And so uh, in connection with the Elvis memory story, he asked me to come and take pictures of John and Yoko. And then they lived around the corner of Bank Street, but he said to meet him at a hotel. And I was like, what am I, what are we doing at a hotel? It was a little, I was a little nervous, you know? <laughs> I didn't know this guy. He wanted to meet me in a hotel room. I'm like, what's up? Uh, but I went to the hotel and he met me in the lobby. And he said, John and Yoko had just woken up and they were doing interviews in the hotel so people didn't come to the house. But he said they just woken up and they were a little cranky. They didn't know I had a photographer, but I should just wait a little while and they'll probably let me come up. And he said, they'll probably like you and your pictures and you'll probably get to be friends with them. And you'll probably do album covers for them because that's the way they are. And I remember him saying that in the hallway because that's what happened. I waited like 20 minutes. I said, I'll be in the bar. Let me know if you're ready. You know, I went and had a drink. And, and sure enough, 20 minutes later, he came and said, they're ready. And I went up and I remember walking down the hall to John Yoko's room being a so nervous I was shaking I was trembling and I realized I couldn't take pictures with my hands shaking like that and I just had to chill out and relax and that yes it'd be amazing if I could work with John Yoko but it would only happen if I could do what I do and they happen to like what I do and I just went in a bit calm like that and just said fuck it you know we'll see what happens and I took some good pictures of him that night and uh and then I asked him if I could come to the studio hold on, hold on. I'm curious I'm curious is there an angle that you try to focus on when you take pictures of people like John and Yoko? Is there something about your photography that you try to do as something different, perhaps, than other photographers would do? Well, in a couple of senses, yes. Uh, first of all, I try to get a very natural picture. I don't tell them what to do because then I'd have a picture of them trying to imagine what I'm saying and trying to look like I want them to look rather I'd rather have them look like they want to look and I'll just wait them out I'm very patient and I just wait around till somebody looks in what I think it looks good in the case of John and Yoko actually years later when we did become friends um, 
Yoko mentioned to me that most photographers who would come in to see John Yoko were very nervous, like I was when I first was walking down the hall. And she said, sometimes they're so nervous, they yell at their assistants or they throw a camera and their being nervous makes John and Yoko nervous. And so in the pictures, they look nervous. And Yoko said that I walked in, I was just the calmest person they met and that my being calm, let them stay calm. And my pictures of them are very relaxed and comfortable. And so, yes, in that sense, I wait people out. I don't walk in nervous and, and you know, tell them what to do or anything like that. Uh, I try to be like a, you know, a, like a dentist, painless and quick. You know, and get, most people don't like a picture taken. I mean, I compare it to the dentist. Most people just don't want to have a picture taken. They don't trust people. They don't know what they're going to look like. So I try to be quick and painless and just, you know, make people comfortable. And I did that night. And, and then I asked if I could go to the recording studio with them to get pictures together with the band. Because uh, that's what the story was about. And Yoko said, okay. And then uh, about a week or so later, it turned out they contacted me because I was the only one who had pictures of them together with the band in the studio. So they used my picture in their album cover package. And that's when we met and they saw my other pictures. And they, and they told me to come around more often and to hang out with them. And uh, I'm still friends with Yoko today. Because the friendship develops slowly. I mean, you don't just, you know, people say, how do you become friends with somebody? You get along. So I don't know how to explain it. Like, I get along with musicians, not everybody. I photographed thousands of people. I became friends with dozens, you know? <laughs> sure, sure. Hi, everybody. This is your host, Robert Miller. I'm pleased to tell you that I've got a new album coming out soon called Bobby M. and the Paisley Parade. It features 10 new songs, plus guest appearances by John Helliwell of Supertramp, Tony Carey of Rainbow, and international sitar sensation Deobrat Mishra. The album has a definite 60s vibe, and the theme of the record is all about relationships and love. It may just be my best album ever. The reviewers agree. Indie Shark calls it Album of the Year. Big Celebrity Buzz says it's one of the great rock sets of the year. And Pop Icon calls it an adventure that keeps us on the edge of our seats. How about that? And for me, the icing on the cake is the praise that the album has received from world-class musicians like Steve Hackett of Genesis, Gary Puckett of The Union Gap, Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul & Mary, Jim McCarty of The Yardbirds, and David Liebert of The Happenings. I'm going to release the 10 songs on the album in a novel way. In five special episodes of this podcast, featuring two songs in each one, starting after the new year. So be on the lookout for these special episodes of Bobby M. and the Paisley Parade. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to this podcast and please sign up for our weekly emails previewing each episode and much more. The links are all in the show notes. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking.
All right, so go to the Stones. Go to the Rolling Stones. Let's hear your story with them. Well, the first band I saw in a rock concert was the Rolling Stones. My friends were in a band after, after college, um, after high school, actually. I listened to Timothy Leary, and I turned on, tuned in, and dropped out. <laughs> uh, you know, the establishment didn't seem to be something I wanted to do. I didn't want to work in an office for no reason. Um, and I went to live with a rock and roll band and have fun. They were actually rehearsing, and I went up to 14th Street. The Flag Brothers Shoe Company had a knockoff of the Beetle Boots, like little pointy boots with a Cuban heel, and it was $10. And I took my $10, we got a lot of money back then. Um, I took my $10, and I went up to 14th Street, but I ran into this girl from high school. She was selling some tickets for something on the sidewalk. And I said, what's going on? She said, the Rolling Stones are at the Academy of Music right next door. And I said, what, what's the Rolling Stones? And she said, it's a band from England. And I said, a band is playing in a theater? I thought bands played in bars. I didn't, I, I couldn't, have, I didn't know the concept of a band in a theater. They were like background music in a bar, you know? So the first rock show I saw in a theater was the Rolling Stones. It was uh, mind blowing. I ran back to my friends. It was like four blocks away to the rehearsal room. I ran back and said, hey, I got two tickets. Because my friend was selling the tickets for 10 bucks. They were $2 tickets, so $5 for two of them. And she charged me double, $10. Uh, nowadays, they cost $450 to $800 for, or $1,000 for a Rolling Stone ticket. Back then, I got two for 10 and it was double price. But um, anyway, my friends were saying, no, we're rehearsing. I'm not, we're not going to the show. I'm like, uh, well, and Larry Corio had just come to New York and my friends had run into him and asked him if he wanted to be in a band. And he said, okay. And he was rehearsing with him that day. Larry Corio turned out to be one of the premier guitarists. Jazz guitar is kind of an inventor of what's called jazz fusion, like jazz and rock and roll. And he was the sweetest, nicest guy from uh, Seattle. And anybody just come to New York. So the first two days we had him in our rehearsal room because <laughs> he didn't know where he was or who he was talking to. A week later, I think he was playing with Miles Davis. <laughs> so we knew he was out of our class. And so he was bored with the rehearsal. So he came with me to the Rolling Stones. And he knew a lot more than I did. And uh, he was saying like, oh, look, they're using the Marshall amp or whatever kind of amp. I didn't know what he was talking about. To me, the excitement in the room was more intense than my first acid trip. I mean, it was just chaos and people screaming and paper plates and flo floating through the air that people were throwing. This was before Frisbees were invented. Um, and it was just uh, uh, an amazing scene. And it was so noisy and loud. When the band came on, all I heard was noise. Were you taking photos or were you just there in the audience? Yeah, I was sitting there always with my mouth open and my eyes wide and just, you know, taking it all in. And um, the only thing I really heard was the last song, the bass line, dun, dun, da -da, dun, da -da, dun, Satisfaction. And I came back, I hardly talked. My friend said, What happened? What, how was it? What, how was it? I went, dun, dun, da -da, da -da. <laughs> That's about all I could think of for months after that. And, uh, and that started me. I was a rock and roll fanatic ever since. Did you do work with them, Bob? Um, eventually, not actually with them. I've taken pictures in concerts. I've taken pictures at parties. I've taken pictures in interviews. I never did a formal photo session with the Rolling Stones. I see. I don't do a lot of studio photo sessions. I'm usually on location. I take pictures where things are happening. Good for you. All right, tell me about Zeppelin. Did you work with them? Again, I didn't work for the band, but um, I didn't really know much about them. I was hanging out with the New York Dolls and uh, Johnny Yoko, and it was 1973. Uh, I didn't really know who Led Zeppelin were. 
um, Lisa Robinson, who uh, was the editor of Rock Scene Magazine, and she was a, one of the major uh, rock critics in America. Uh, she wrote for the New York Post, and it was syndicated like 128 newspapers. And she was widely, widely read, and in England with the NME. So anyway, she called up one day and said, "Can you uh, are you busy today? Can you come to Pittsburgh? We want to we're going to photograph uh, Led Zeppelin." I said, how are we going to get to Pittsburgh? She said, oh, they have their own airplane. I said, oh, I could do that. <laughs> you know, so, so we met up at a hotel. We took a, a limos out to the airport. And uh, as we got on the, as we were getting on the plane, I think it was either Robert or Lisa said, oh, let's take a picture with the plane. And we walked over by the wing. And what I love about the picture is that the plane is so big, it doesn't fit in the picture. All you see is the wing and some of the fuselage and the name on the plane, Led Zeppelin. They did not own the plane. The plane was a fantastic plane, uh, 727, called the Enterprise Starship One. And uh, bands rented it by the month. And if you rented it for a month, they put your name on it. So I was on the same plane with Elton John on the, on the thing. Uh, I wasn't there, but Alice Cooper had it, Rolling Stones had it, the Allman Brothers had it. You know, different bands would rent it for a month. But in the picture, it looks like they see the kids, they don't even button their shirt. They're like top of the world, and they own their own plane. You know, it's got their name on it, you know, uh, and it's gigantic. And uh, it was really, it, that picture really sums up the, the excess of the 70s. You're right. I have seen that picture. I was the first time I met them, and the band was pretty stoned out, and I wasn't a girl, so they really had no reason to talk to me. <laughs> um, and the day I was there, Lisa Robinson was there, and also Ahmed Erdogan and a couple of lawyers. It was like a business day. So the plane was not filled with naked groupies or anything like that. It was pretty disturbing uh, <laughs> the day I was there. So I don't really have any wild Zeppelin stories, um, although I did see them a number of times. And nowadays, they're very nice to me, Robert and, and Jimmy, when I run into them. Fantastic. All right. So let, tell me about some of these New York bands that you also took photos of. I'm talking about the New York Dolls. And the Ramones and Blondie, you were down in that in that whole village scene, I take it. Well, uh, again, like I said, one thing in my life, one thing just led to another. Um, I, you know, I got included in the first book. I met John and Yoko, and I was taking pictures of the Elephant's Memory. And John made an album uh, for the Elephant's Memory. I had a lot of pictures for them, and uh, went to the, took them to their management office. And there was somebody in the management office. A guy named Tony Machine, he said, you got to come and see this other band that we manage. They're called the New York Dolls. So I went down to the Mercer Arts Center. And again, I was blown away by the intensity and the chaos that was the New York Dolls. And uh, I remember I saw them at the Mercer Arts Center, like in the middle of December. And I came back with my wife and a couple of the Elephant's Memory uh, for the New Year's Eve show. And... Uh, then I started videotaping when they played at Kenny's Castaways, and then I met them and showed them the videotapes, and we became friends and basically family. Uh, David Johansson was one of my best friends in the 70s. We were together almost every day. Sylvain Sylvain uh, it was a lifelong friend, all of them. And Johnny Thunders used to bring his son here and play with my son, and we'd get a babysitter together. Uh, they, they were amazing. I mean, their shows were chaos. They were way ahead of their time. People didn't understand what it was all about. Uh, but a lot of bands I met, everybody from Ace Freely to Joe Stromer said that when they saw the Dolls, they knew they could do something like that too. Uh, the Dolls just made it look like fun and they made it look easy. 
Uh, it didn't look like work when I was playing. It just looked like an awful lot of fun. And a lot of people saw that and that, oh, yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> it was a whole scene, a whole scene down at CBGB's and uh, that whole area. Well, then that was the thing. They started playing at Max's. I saw them a bunch of times. And then Hilly opened his place downtown called CBGB. And I went with David. I remember the first time we saw Richard Hell and uh, not and Debbie Harry. She wasn't. It wasn't even Blondie yet. It was, Debbie was in a band called the Stilettos. And uh, I remember Lisa Robinson telling me, "Go take a picture of the Stilettos." There's a girl named Debbie Harry. She's absolutely beautiful. I really think she's going to be a big star. And I remember walking in. It's the first time I saw Debbie, and I went, "Wow, Lisa's absolutely right." And uh, Debbie is one of the most beautiful people of our generation. It's just almost impossible to take a bad picture of Debbie. And she's also one of the funniest and brightest and nicest and uh, just punkiest person you can imagine. And so she also became a good friend and family. And Debbie's older than me. Debbie's one of the few people. Debbie's four, four months older than me. I'm older than most of the people in punk, like by five to ten years. I was five years older than McDonald's and ten years older than The Clash. But Debbie's actually four months older than me, so I always felt it's okay to be old, you know? <laughs> I mean, look at her. She still looks fantastic. All right, I got to ask you this, because you've taken pictures of so many great artists. You've been so much front and center in the whole rock scene uh, in history. Is there any one photograph or set of photographs that you're most proud of? Oh, well, it's not any one. I mean, I do have a lot. I've done a lot of good ones in, uh, over the years. I mean, certainly the Tina Turner picture, multiple image picture like that, because um, it's it's five exposures, but in one image. It's not five different Photoshopped pictures or anything. What I took was what happened. Uh, and so I'm very proud of that one. Uh, certainly the John Lennon New York City picture that people like a lot. But more than that, for me, the picture that I took of John Lennon at the Statue of Liberty has a lot more meaning for people because John, like the Statue of Liberty, is a symbol of personal freedom for a lot of people. And so that picture, I think, has much more meaning than just the rock and roll personality. But and there's a few pictures I've done. You know, I have a book of pictures of The Clash. I have a book of pictures of Led Zeppelin. I have a book of pictures of the uh, Sex Pistols. I have a whole book of pictures of uh, the New York Dolls and also one of Green Day. So those are a lot of good pictures. <laughs> You've got this this man has taken pictures of everybody in rock and roll. We have been speaking here with Bob Gruen. Bob, it's just fascinating to listen to you because you went you went pretty far from the New York World's Fair, that's for sure. That, um, that I am a long way. <laughs> Sorry, because that's where I got my first roles of film to go to Newport and start photographing musicians. There you go. Everybody has to have a start somewhere. That's an interesting start. I don't encourage people to steal film, though. Don't don't say I, I, I'm not encouraging that. Uh, but you got to, you know, big bar or steal is how you get started. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of kids out there that don't even know what we're talking about when we talk about film, okay? Because they only know. Oh right, yeah, that stuff. They only know the current situation without film. It was an antique way of capturing images. Do you miss it? Would you rather have the film back? No, film was a pain in the ass. I had to develop it. It was very sensitive to heat. It's very sensitive to x-rays. So after a while, it got difficult to travel with film when they started x-raying all the baggage. Um, Digital is a lot easier. Uh, it's a lot easier to correct things than trying to play in the dark room, you know, with light. It's, it is quite an artistic form. I mean, after a while, when I finally, uh, I was a very bad printer, a black and white printer for a long time. I, I, it took me a while to get the hang of it. But once I did, 
it was a really interesting, I mean, almost fun where you're playing with light. You're literally holding light in your hand and putting more over here and a little less over there and creating a photograph, um, balancing it with your hands, holding the light. And, uh, and I found that to be fascinating and fun, but um, a lot easier to do it with Photoshop. And once you do it once with Photoshop, you don't have to do it over and over again as you would in the darkroom with a print. Every print is different. With Photoshop, you fix it once and you got a perfect thing, you know? This man knows what he's talking about. We've been speaking again with Bob Gruen, maybe the greatest rock photographer of all time. Bob, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been so much fun to listen to all your stories. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. And now we're going to listen to that song that started off the podcast episode again. It's my song called New York City Groove. I want to thank you for listening and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Ba-da-ba-ba